Well, we're continuing our series, The Church and Diaspora. And Pastor Chris has been looking at a lot of macro issues from a high-level view. And it's very important for the church at this time. Looking at injustice, looking at suffering, looking at social unrest. And we look at 2 Corinthians 5, and we as believers, we're meant to reconcile the world to Christ. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And if people are reconciled to God, they can reconcile with others. Well, today we're going to go from the macro view to the micro view, to the kitchen table. And the topic that is very practical uh, for all of us, and very basic, fights, arguments, and wars. James, in his epistle, asked the question. We're going to be looking at James 4, 1 through 10. And he asked the question, where do wars come from? Where do quarrels, where do arguments come from? And I want you to think about your patterns of behavior. Do you have arguments? Are you hard to deal with? Have you had a lot of conflict of late? If so, what's your role in it? Just just ponder it because James is challenging us. The Holy Spirit has written this in his word because he wants to teach us the truth of how God sees your conflict. So this is for everybody, everybody in the church. If you're married, what do people argue about? They argue about finances. Married couples marry about, um, they argue about respect. They argue about sensitivity or being insensitive or in-laws or childcare or parenting or, you know, one of the parents is too lenient. The other one's too strict and it causes division. Maybe someone's overprotective, someone's underprotective. If you're single you know, or in your roommate situation, what do you fight about? You fight about someone's a slob. Someone's too nitpicky. Um, someone brought their girlfriend over, their boyfriend over. They're not being considerate. They're spending too much time with me. Um, they don't let me leave. You know, it's just all these arguments. Um, you know, if you're in a situation where you're in a dating relationship, you know, there's different needs there. And so we all have different arguments. In churches, we're talking about, you know, I wish the leader would do it this way. I should have this role. Uh, I wouldn't do it this way. We all have tensions and we get disappointed with each other. We let each other down and there's a stirring in our hearts and then it causes quarrels. It causes fights. Well, the world has their answers to how to solve fights. I have an article from the New York Times here. It says how to end pandemic fights with your partner. This one is 11 tips couples should follow from therapists. Um, in Wuhan, where the coronavirus started, things have calmed down from a virus standpoint, but the divorce rate has doubled what is normal. And the same is predicted in Europe and North America. Why? Is it because of the pandemic itself? No, it's not the circumstance. The circumstance is like hot water. My wife, Jennifer, she uses the analogy that the hot water just reveals what's in the heart, like a tea bag. And all that stuff comes out. It's just the circumstances that cause the tensions in the home. My social worker friend says that domestic violence is going up during this situation. Why? Because what's happening in people's hearts. And so we're going to be looking at this. And, you know, the one critique, these articles are great. Um, they're helpful. They have some good tips. But really, from the world's perspective, they give two solutions one is the real problem is a lack of education or it's a psychological or a biological problem. 
And so if you just learn these tips, if you just practice it, see the problem is, is that you didn't see your parents practice the right way and you just learned that. But if you do this role play, it'll solve your problems. They have a very high view of the human heart. Or another view is that, hey, you know, if you just replace this book, if you change this curriculum, if you take this statue down, again, I'm not making a political commentary, but the idea is this, is it's someone else's fault, okay? So these are two ideas the world has. One is that the human heart is good and able to change. The second idea is it's someone else's problem. And if you just change the source of the problem, things will be peaceful. Let me tell you, this is exactly opposite of what the Holy Spirit says here in James. So let's read James 4, starting at verse 1. We're going to look at 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Wow, Lord, this is a hard word. This is a difficult word to accept. We like to be right. We think we're right. We're right on the issue, and it's their fault. That's what we say. But God, show us our heart. Show us what we're really like. Help us to submit to you and to submit all of our desires to you. We want to be peacemakers. In Jesus' name, amen. And maybe that's where um, I should start with you is, you know, I come here with a pastoral heart, not saying that I've arrived. This is something that I feel by God's grace and only by God's grace. I have a great marriage. I have wonderful children. And uh, there's a certain level of peace and joy and fruitfulness in my home. And it's all to be given to God. But, man, we argue. I mean, even as I'm preparing this message Jen, in her goodness, she says, I'm going to take the kids out, take them to the beach. That's a good thing, right? Kids should all be happy. I'll tell you what, kid number one wants to go fishing. So he's concerned with the tides and early. We got to get there. We got to go fishing. Well, kid number two doesn't care about fishing. Kid number two wants it warm. So later in the day is better for the waves and for the swimming. Well, kid number one still wants to be there and get the fish. So he knows he has to get his little brothers. I mean, Kids number three and four into the car, or four and five. I lose track. I have five kids. But Jen says, don't put the kids in the car now. They'll just fight. It's like chemistry. You put two kids in the car, they start fighting. You know, so it's like, and then the other kid jumps in and says, no, we're not fighting. And so we're fighting about not fighting. 
That's just like a snapshot. Sometimes I go to work just to have peace. And I call up Jen, God bless her, and I'm like, how's your day going? She says, I feel like I've been breaking up fights all day. So, you know, you got seven people in a very small house and you have four kids, two bunk beds and a little room. One thing I've learned is I've learned how to bring peace when there's skirmishes, when there's quarrels. And I'm hoping that this passage will be as meaningful to you as it has been for me. So let me just talk about some, I'm going to talk about some two general observations I make about verses 1 through 10. Then we'll talk about three main points, and then I'll give you some applications. Okay, so James has started, and he says, where do these quarrels come from? Now, I submit to you, if you were in school or a university or a mandatory training in your company, and we were talking about conflict resolution, I guarantee one of the first things you would learn is the issue. Here's the issue we're arguing about. And for us to have a good dialogue, we need to talk about the issue. We need to define terms, so we're talking about the same thing. And the second thing we talk about is we got to talk about the audience. Who's your quote-unquote opponent? And what's their view and so on? I want you to notice something. When I read this scripture, and James is writing to all churches, not a particular church, the Holy Spirit isn't even dealing. He's saying, what is the source of the quarrels? I'm not even going to deal with the issue. That's what we deal with. What? We're not talking about the issue? I'm right on the issue. Not dealing with the issue. God is not dealing with the issue. He's dealing with our hearts. Second, we end up in the end mourning and repenting. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. Man, I don't, I don't like that. The other person should repent to me because I'm right. No, this whole passage is dealing with our hearts. It's very consistent with Matthew 7 when Jesus said, Take the log out of your own eye before you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And when you take a speck out, you do so gently because you want them to see. So I kind of don't like that in my flesh because I want to blame the other person. I want to explain why I'm right on the issue. And, I, and you know what? In a counseling situation, when people come for counseling, these are the things that happen. It's this person's issue, and this is the issue, and this is why I'm right. Holy Spirit says, it's a moot point. Here's the second observation I have about verses 1 through 10. Who is our enemy? Who is our opponent? Obviously, it's the knucklehead I'm talking to. Obviously, it's my roommate. Obviously, it's my my co-worker. It's, It's my boss who's being ridiculous. It's my wife who's being unreasonable and oversensitive. No. These are your enemies. Ready? Take notes. Verse 1. Within you, you, the flesh. I don't like that. The Holy Spirit says the first problem, your first opponent is your own sinful flesh. Verse one, within you, your passions within you is the source of the problem. It goes from within you to among you. Let me say that again. Within you, there's a conflict. There's discontent. There's some desire welling up in your heart that's not being met. And because you're not satisfied, because you're not happy, because you think God gypped you or someone else took from you, now you're going to have a conflict with others. So the first is the flesh. The second opponent, verse 4, the world. Oh, no. So the world, the world system, the world is the influence. You know, you go on social media and sometimes 
you're out there and you realize that this person has what I should have. You know, this person's at my same level professionally, but they have these kind of cars or they, ha- they have these kind of things. I should have this and you have discontent. And then discontent causes passions and desires that lead to conflicts. So number one, your own flesh. Number two, the world. Number three, uh-oh, verse seven, the devil. The devil's involved. You know what? When we are motivated by the passions in our heart that are worldly, the devil does get involved. So he's our other opponent. Okay, maybe there's a bonus. There's a fourth one. This has got to be the person I'm arguing with, right? Wrong. I guess you could say verse 6 and verse 8. Your own pride. Your own pride blinds you to the reality of your part in this dispute because you think you're right. You know, to think is to think you're right. I'm right. Of course I'm right. But the Bible calls that double-minded. James says double-minded means you're not self-aware. You really don't see it the right way. And I got to tell you, like chapter three is so convicting to me as a, as a teacher of the word. Because as a teacher of a word, I think I'm right. I can say, oh, I got this Bible verse, this Bible verse, this Bible verse. And so, Jen, I'm arguing with my wife, and I'm like, oh, I'm right because of this, 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 and this. And I have all my justification. Remember, I got my issue. Well, guess what? The devil can quote scripture too. That hurts. You know what I mean? Sometimes I'm using the word of God to justify myself. Even if I'm right on the issue, sometimes my motivations are wrong, or sometimes it's mixed in with my flesh. And you know what? You know, sometimes Jen is just like, you know what? Don't, don't try to bully me with your big words and your theological knowledge. And then she's right. Because sometimes I'm just operating in pride and I'm hiding behind theological knowledge. All right, I'm just getting warmed up. That's just a couple observations. Now let's get into the text. So this is main point one, if you want to write it down. Main point one is this. And this is verses one through three, is that fights, quarrels come from your unmet desires. And unfortunately, your unmet desires are often fleshly. That's where murders come from. That's where divorce or church splits. It's an inner desire to have our own way. Now, there's some desires that we just know are wrong. I mean, like greed. I mean, we know that's wrong. Lust. We know that's wrong. Vengeance. We know that's wrong. But they can creep in very easily. It could be that God has blessed you with your business or with some prosperity. Because God's will for you is to give generously to missions, give generously to the church, to fund and expand his kingdom. But what happens is the world creeps in and all of a sudden you covet other things and then you start to redistribute what is meant for the Lord, what he blessed you with for other reasons, then greed comes in your heart. You know, but a lot of times, I think this is, you know, for the church, for our people, the real danger is when we have a legitimate good desire that somehow transforms into an idol. Let me explain that to you. There is nothing wrong with wanting to have a good career, to be successful in your field. That's a good desire. You should desire it and you should work towards it. But when that career becomes so important that you sacrifice your children and your wife 
in your church work, on the altar of your career for yourself, then it becomes an idol. You know, it's not bad to desire physical intimacy within the context of a marriage. That's a very good desire. But when you're impatient and you cheat the process, you it can create this idol in your heart. Or if you start demanding to God, I really, I've been doing this for you, been doing this for you. You know, where's my spouse? You know, where is it, God? We start to become discontent. And then it becomes an idol. Or, you know, you want peace and quiet. That's a good thing, right? Or cleanliness. But what happens is when we don't get it, we start to think. We might not say it directly, but what we're really saying is, hey, this person, this person close to me, they have what I want. And if they don't give it to me, I'm going to punish them. Of course, we don't say that directly, but that's really our practice. So let's say I'm at work and I want to come home. I worked hard all day. See, it's my entitlement. Who told, who told me that as a man, I get to work all day and I get to go home, be lazy and, and watch football? Ooh, easy. I like football. That's the world. No, when you go home, man, you go home and that's when your day, that's when your shift starts at home. You're to love your wife. You're to love your children. And the same is true. It doesn't matter. Wife coming home and so on. And so you, I come home, like the house is a little mess. I mean, what do you expect? You got all these, these kids running around. I'm like, can I just come home to a clean house? And if I have a desire in my heart and I start to demand cleanliness and I start barking at the kids and, and expressing my disappointment, what I've done in that moment is I've had a passion or a desire for my peace, my pleasure, and it's coming at the expense of those around me. And that's what causes conflict. Or, you know, let's say you're in a, you're a roommate situation. You know, you got a bunch of single guys in a house. You know, I've done that. And, um, you know, you're thinking, oh, man, I'm the house dad. I have to deal with the finances. I, you know, I don't care. You can have some of my mayonnaise and mustard. That's fine. Don't worry about it. But please um, just do your dishes. And you have a conversation with a brother. And what happens is, um, you know, he doesn't do his dishes, okay? Man, I, I lived in a house, uh, a pastor's house, before I was married. It was disgusting. It was like they would have these ministry events and no one would do the dishes. And so what happens, I start to get really annoyed. I say, hey, guys, you got to do your dishes. They didn't do the dishes. And then next day, I'm like, okay, I'm going to ask them again, confront them again. Hey, guys, do you do your dishes? They don't do your dishes. All of a sudden, those guys that I had been praying for, that I was going to live in the house and be friends with, I'm starting to hate those guys. I'm starting to like, and, and Jesus said, if you hate someone, you murder them. That's why it says here, you don't, you desire, you don't have, so you murder. Man, are you going to murder someone over like a piece of uh, peanut butter on a spoon? It's not about the peanut butter. It's about respect. That's really the deeper issue. You, you hear all these news stories, they're kind of funny that like, you know, uh, sister kills his brother over a piece of pizza. It's not about a piece of pizza. It's about someone's hangry. Someone has desire for something. Some words are exchanged. There's a disrespect and you're demanding respect from the other. And when you don't get it, you kill. For some of us, how do we show our discontent? Some of us, it depends if we're passive aggressive or aggressive aggressive. For some of us, we're sarcastic, we're cutting, uh, we're argumentative or verbally, hopefully not verbally abusive or physically abusive. That's unacceptable. God will deal with that. 
he'll deal with all the sins. But others of us, you know, we'll just withhold things. It's like, oh, you're sleeping on the couch, or I'm going to be really cool to you emotionally. And then as a last resort, it says here, all right, you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly. So now you're praying. <clears throat> okay, God, <clears throat> excuse me. You're like, God, can you change my wife? For goodness sake. But it's like, he's not your genie. Maybe God put you single guys in this housing situation because he wants to stir things up and train you how to get along. Because what happens is it says in Proverbs 18.1 that someone who's isolated is just living for their own desires. They isolate themselves. And what happens in a church, you know, regardless of gender or where you're coming from, is you start to come together as a family in community and you start to learn how to be sacrificial, how to be loving. And that's what's happening. So when we ask God to just change this person, because they're the issue, maybe you have pride. Maybe God wants to change you. Maybe he wants you to be more long suffering. And that's why when we get to verse four, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world's is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In some translations, it might be more accurate that God makes himself your enemy. You might think you're fine. Oh, me and God are fine. All right, great. Is he fine with you? Because it says here in the word of God that you're adulterous when you elevate yourself in your own mind and you demand that other people meet your desires. So, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So, you know, I was talking to Norm about this the other day, you know, and he really helped me because any one of us, the, the issues of the world or the ideas of the world can creep in. I'm middle age-ish, okay? And what happens is if you're in a certain profession and you see where you're at and you see what car you drive and you see what houses other people own and you think, man... By this time in life, I should have X. Because I've been involved in this church stuff, by this time in life, I should be married to this. I should have these things. We have this kind of formula. And my question is, where did this formula come from? You come home from work and you say, hey, just so you know, I'm going golfing with the boys the whole weekend. No discussion. Yeah, but why? Because I work hard. I love golf. I hate golf, actually. I took my dad's golf club last time I went, threw his club in a tree. Anger, different topic, different message. But the point is this, is that some men and women, they have some entitlement attitude that, hey, if I work this kind of job and do this kind of thing, then I'm entitled to go here. Woman says, hey, I'm having a women's night or women's weekend in Vegas. I'm entitled to it. I mean, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong per se in those activities. It's that sometimes we have in our mind that I deserve this kind of clothes. I deserve these kind of sneakers. I deserve these kind of things. It's an entitlement. And the question is, where did that come from? Because when you were baptized into Jesus' death, you died to yourself. And when you came up, you said, whatever your will is, is my will. But what we do 
is we think that God owes us something, and that's just a form of idolatry. You know, and getting back to the adultery issue, you know, in the Old Testament, there's all sorts of metaphors. See, what happens is, like, Aaron is waiting for Moses to come down with the with the Ten Commandments, and God delays. He takes a little longer than what was expected. Aaron had in his mind what it should be, and so he gets nervous because God didn't provide what Aaron wanted in the timeline that Aaron wanted. And so they built an idol. And we do the same thing. Sometimes we're impatient for what God wants to do in us and do for us. And as a result, idolatry comes in our hearts. Okay, let's let's keep uh, <clears throat> moving forward. And, you know, Paul described it this way. <clears throat> Excuse me. In Romans 7, he said, you know, there's some things I want to do that I don't do, and things I don't want to do that I do. What a wretched man I am. Who is going to deliver me from this body of sin and death? And he says that I find this law at work. What my spirit wants to do, which is good, my flesh works against me. And so that's what Paul says, he cries out to Jesus. And that's where we come to verse six. But he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. So what you're finding here is that the last step is to stop being proud and admit your part in the problem. That maybe it's not your spouse or your roommate or your boyfriend or your girlfriend. I mean, I'm sure they have faults too, but God's dealing with you. Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for all of us to die once and face judgment. And when we're judged, we're not going to have, we're not going to call witnesses. It's us. It's Jesus judging us. You are responsible for your behavior, not other people's behavior in the conflict. So you need to draw close to God and admit that, you know what, Lord? I think even though I mean right, I think there's desires. I think there's discontentment. I think that these people are not giving me what I think I deserve or I want these people in my life, even though I love them, I'm hurting them. And I haven't submitted that to you because even things God gives you, like Isaac, he asked Abraham to sacrifice. We have to put all of our desires we have, career, partnership, uh, resolution, whatever it is, children, whatever it is we desire, we have to put those dreams, those goals those things that we long for, we have to put it on the altar and say, Lord, it's yours, I submit to you. And then we ourselves have to submit. I'll tell you that in my experience, um, sometimes people are warned by the Holy Spirit through other individuals that they have these idolatry happening in their life. I mean, James is using the metaphor of idolatry 
And no, no, adultery. Sorry, adultery. And it's kind of like this. If you slip, maybe you've allowed desires of the world or a certain material level or uh, relational satisfaction into your heart, into your mind, and you feel like you're right, and you're not willing to forfeit that. When we do that, we elevate our rights above God because that's not how Jesus conducts himself. He, he conducts himself mercifully, gracefully for the other. And so some people are confronted with this and they're polite. For example, Pastor Chris talked a couple weeks ago about someone that wouldn't put um, a blocker on their phone. If you're looking at images that are immoral and it's corrupting your mind, and the Word of God says that in Proverbs 21, 23, the desire of a lazy man kills him because it doesn't matter whether you're lazy or hardworking or, or working in a relationship or being lazy, you still have the same desire. But some men, some women, are not willing to wait and do it God's way. And so they just feed themselves. And then sometimes people will give you a warning and say, you know what? The Word of God says, if you remain stiff-necked and proud after many warnings, you'll be suddenly destroyed without remedy. That's what the Word of God says. And you warn someone, and they might politely say, yeah, that's a good idea. I should get a blocker. Even though it's hurting my relationship, I haven't quite done it. And then they don't do it. This is not Michael talking to you. This is the Holy Spirit. You know what God says about that? It's like this. It's like you're living with your mistress, and then you're complaining about your marriage, and your wife is giving you a hard time. All sin is bad, and all of us slip in many ways. It's a different scenario. It's an analogy that James is using. But, you know, imagine if you're, you know, you have an old life, and you're trying to work and live with, for God, and you're driving in a part of town where your ex lives. And, you know, you give in to the lust in your heart, and you, you, know, you, you go over her house just to talk, and then bad things happen. Then you come and you confess to a brother. Well, it's bad. It's sin. Every sin you do is an inside job. That's what we learn in verse 1, right? It's not, you can't just say the devil made me do it. No, you did it. The Holy Spirit's in you. The Holy Spirit gives you the power to resist the enemy. But you gave in. You went to her house. You messed around. Well, that's bad. There could be restoration. Talk to some brothers. Maybe they'll help you set up some parameters, have accountability. That's great. But what if I told you that the guy moved in with her? He's living with her. He moved in. Some people, some Christians, have an idol in their heart. And even after many warnings, they still are unwilling to give up that idol. And it's as ridiculous to God as it is saying, man, I wish I had a good marriage while you're living with your mistress. It's ridiculous. It's adultery. You know, the Word of God is not a respecter of persons. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're a teacher of the Word. It doesn't matter who you are. The Word of God takes no prisoners. And so I would just examine your heart to make sure that you are truly submitted to God. Because Jesus says, you know, if something causes you to sin, you know, cut it out. And, and what have you done to move forward there? Otherwise, you're just double-minded. And for others, maybe it's not just the appetites of the flesh, but maybe it's just pride. Maybe you're thinking that, you know, it's not me. 
you know, when I argue with Jen, it could be like premise, premise, conclusion. And uh, here's the, my logical, you know, argument. And like I told you, she's like, yeah, I'm still sleeping on the couch and I'm still operating in sin. Do you think God can't see through me? God's not a chump. He knows. So, the three main points of the message today is where do the quarrels come from? It comes from your desires that haven't been submitted to God. You have to understand that your default position, your default desire is to war against the Spirit. We always, you know, when you become a Christian, it's not that it's just easy street. You enter a war and you're going to have an internal war for the rest of your life. And you just, through the power of the Spirit, you try to subdue the old man inside of you. It's not easy. But with Christ, it, it requires submission. Christ has to fight that battle for you. The second main point, once again, is that when we do not submit our desires to God, they become idolatrous. They become idols in our life, and it's like adultery against God. And third, the only solution is to submit yourselves to God. Let me give you some practical applications. Two are from this text, and two are just topical. You know, you might be listening to this message, and you might say, well, you know what, I, I, I agree. I didn't see it this way, but I realized that even though I think the other person's wrong and then I'm right on the issue, I can see that I've allowed my own passion, my own need to be right, my own pride, my own need for affirmation and appreciation and righteousness. I, I've made that an idol, and uh, I need to confess that. Well, that's, that's great. So you, what do you do? You submit your, your desires to the Lord, and you ask him to have his will, and then you can make peace with the other person. Uh, don't do it out of compulsion, but just pray about it, and maybe you can make peace. Or maybe you think, I'm not wrong. I thought about it, I don't think I'm wrong. What I would say is this, just be careful, brother. Just be careful, sister, because the default thought in James, in Jesus, in Matthew 7, is that your quarrels are coming from your desires that are not submitted to God. So I would just say, you know, Read the scriptures, ask God to reveal things. Just You should be open and say, God, am I wrong in this? I think I'm right, but am I wrong? Show me. Pray a prayer like that, and the Holy Spirit will answer. Ask counsel. You know, plans fail for lack of counsel. Ask some men or women that you trust and get their thought. And if they give you godly advice, then take it. Or maybe you're right on the issue, and you're pretty concerned about that. But what I want to say is, how about your, how you've delivered the message, your comportment? Because it says in the word of God that a gentle answer turns away wrath. Now, Jesus, for the most part, didn't make people wrathful. Sometimes, like the Pharisees got really angry with him, but Jesus was on the cross, and the people that put him on the cross are there. And he doesn't take it personally. He says, Lord, forgive them. Is that your heart? Give honor to whom honor is due. I remember I got into an argument with my provost, which is like the big head honcho at a university, about a contract. And they were wrong about it. But I was wrong in the way I responded because I wrote a letter. Um, it was pretty harsh in its tone. 
And uh, my boss came back and said, hey, you know, the provost said, man, that was a pretty nasty letter. And I realized I was cut to the heart that this older provost, it says in 1 Timothy 5.1, that if you're going to correct someone older, correct them like you would your own father. I didn't do that. So I had to apologize and humble myself. Finally, um, in some cases, oh, I do want to say this one more thing. It says, um, you know, in Proverbs twenty-five thirty-two, is that you do good to your enemy. If they're hungry, give them food. If they're thirsty, give them drink. And by doing so, you heap burning coals on their head. Because what that does is it brings conviction to them. You might have, oh, I want vengeance. That's natural. But you say to yourself, you know what? Vengeance is the Lord. I'm going to do good. And what happens is when you do good to the other, no matter what they do to you, you give room for the Holy Spirit to do Holy Spirit things, which is bring conviction. When you fail to do that and when you try to be the Holy Spirit instead, you make yourself an idol and you don't do a very good job. And so God will say, all right, you're going to do this. Do good to those who do evil to you. And it brings conviction of the Holy Spirit over them. And finally, in some cases, it's just better to yield. You know, if it's, you know, some issues, Jesus said he, he divided family members because of issues of salvation. There's some things you cannot deny the faith. There are some issues that are so important, you just can't give them up. You can't be wrong. But other times, if it's a lesser issue, sometimes you just have to give in. You just have to yield. Let's say that it's uh, Thanksgiving and I have Norm come over to my house. And let's say I have a glass of wine and he doesn't drink. I, I don't know. We haven't talked about this. And I say, hey, you know, he's uncomfortable. I can tell by his disposition. And I'm like, oh, what's wrong? And he, he's talking about how he's not comfortable. And then I'm saying, hey, you know, Jesus turned water into wine. You know what the word of God says there? It says that if he has a sensitive conscience that I need to yield to that person regardless of how I feel about it. So in lesser issues, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, you know what? Why not just be wronged? Just give in in certain issues. There's all these disputes. Why not just be wrong? Because what happens there is you might win your little battle, but you've caused a bigger rift. And that grieves Jesus. Jesus, in John 17, he prayed that we'd be unified. That was the last prayer before he's crucified for us to be one like he and the Father are one. So if you lose a little battle for the sake of unity, that's the greater good. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for James 4. I pray that all of us would read it and study it. God, I pray, Lord, if we haven't submitted desires that have not been checked to you, we want to just submit those to you now. And maybe the Holy Spirit will lead people in your mind that you need to reconcile with. Don't do it out of compulsion. But Lord, if there's people that we need to ask for forgiveness, help us to do so the right way. Help us to make peace. And Lord, if for some of us who realize that we're really living in spiritual idolatry. We really are unrepentant and unsubmitted. God, I pray you would help all of us to submit those areas to you. 
because you love us enough to warn us by your scriptures, by your word. Because you love us, you want fruitfulness for us. And finally, I'm sure there's a lot of issues that need your help. There's a lot of conflicts that are under the surface, and we just need your wisdom, your intervention. Give us wisdom in whatever situation's on our mind now. I pray, God, that we would have a ministry of reconciliation in our homes, in our community, in our workplaces, Lord, so we could be people of peace. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.